Well, we're up to Amos 7, and I want to focus on really the, uh, the wonderful thing that we, we've got there. It's so wonderful that, in fact, we, we cannot even perceive it. Uh, Amos 7, verse 1 and 2, you've got this vision that he, he has of the, the locusts, or grasshoppers, the AV says, but uh, it's locusts, who go out and start eating up grass, and then... Amos interjects and says this to O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. The Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. And then he sees fire coming down, and devours the great deep, the sea, as if Israel is the sea, and the fire comes down to burn it all up, and it destroys a part of it. And then verse 5, then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. So we have here an example of God stating his purpose, that he is going to destroy Israel, and a man, Amos, interjecting and pleading with him and saying, don't do that, and he says, okay, I will not. And we think straight away of Moses, and we're going to see that actually... Amos here is alluding to Moses and is very influenced by, by Moses' example and his situation with Israel at, at his time. The wonderful thing is, though, that Amos opens his prophecy by saying that for three transgressions of Israel and for four, this is Amos 2, uh, verse 6, I will not turn away, I will not repent of the punishment thereof. So God says... These are the sins of Israel, and I will not repent. I will not change my mind. I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Chapter 2, verse 6. Now you've got uh, pretty well the same word here in Amos chapter 7, verse 3. The Lord repented. He changed his mind. He turned away the intended punishment. When he's just said he's not going to do that. Now, this does not mean that God is kind of a God who is not serious. Not at all. This is, I think, to indicate to us the depth of God's sensitivity to human beings and the degree to which he is open to a change of plan or a change of purpose because of the mediation of other people, of his children, and particularly, of course, the intercession of his son. God is so sensitive. God, God is not like the God of Islam that, that says, just be submissive and do what I say and don't think too much. Check your brain under the door when you walk into church or, or mosque or whatever and uh, just be obedient. Not at all. God is thirsting for relationship. And because he's thirsting for relationship, therefore he is open to entering into dialogue. He says things in his anger. And yet he changes. You see this all through Hosea, where God appears to contradict himself on a sort of on a cynical level. You could say that that he says, "I will love them no more." That he says, "I will love them freely." Israel shall return to Egypt, and that's the end of them. And then he says, "They shall not return to Egypt." And he says, "How shall I give them up? My repentings are kindled within me." Now we are made in the image and likeness of, of God and in the same way as a human being with all integrity can out of the depth of his love for somebody be very angry with them when they, 
reject that love, when they abuse or misuse that love, so God can be the same and is the same. This is how sensitive he is. This is how much he loves his people and we are his people who are gathered here. We are his people, just as Israel were. And God is so open to intercession. It's amazing. So, in this sense, the purpose of God, in some ways, and to some extent, has an open-ended element about it. That he is open to how we want to go. He has, as Paul says, entrusted us, or enfaithed us. He's believed in us with the gospel. He's given us all his wealth. Jesus has gone into the far country and given us all his wealth. All his wealth. All of the talents of of whatever, uh, of gold and silver that he had, he's given to us. And how much they prosper, how much his cause prospers on this earth, will depend upon how well we trade with what he's given us. It's very much in our hands. And God is not going to force our hands. Now, while we're on that theme, and we um, <coughs> starting in verse 1, I suppose, uh, Amos 7, verse 1, you'll be aware that uh, biblical Hebrew is written without vowels, and so it's just the consonants, the non-vowels, and uh, you have to insert the vowels as you think best. And this is why there can be very different readings of the same group of Hebrew consonants. And that's why... The Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, often differs quite radically from the Masoretic text, the the Hebrew text. And um, you might uh, sort of not think the Septuagint is serious, but when you look in the New Testament and see how they quote the writers quote the Old Testament, they nearly always quote by choice from the Septuagint, even in places where the Septuagint differs from the Masoretic text. And I, there's problems with, with the Septuagint, but I just mention that uh, to at least prove that quoting from the Septuagint is not completely um, out of court for us as Bible students. So there's an interesting reading there in chapter 7, verse 1, in the Septuagint, repointing the Hebrew text, and it's, it goes like this. Behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east, and behold, one caterpillar... King Gog. And then Amos intercedes, Repent, O Lord, for this, and this shall not be, saith the Lord. He sees an invasion, according to Septuagint, by Gog, and he intercedes and says, Oh, please may this not be, by whom shall Jacob arise? He is so small, and God says, oh, I, I won't do this. Now, if that is correct, if that's correct reading, and remember what I said about how the inspired New Testament writers quote from the Septuagint in preference to the Masoretic text very often not always but but quite often just remembering that that could well imply that the invasion by Gog which we meet in Ezekiel 38 was an invasion that was intended to be but didn't happen and why didn't it happen? Because Amos, when he heard about it, said to God, don't do that. Have mercy upon Israel. And God did. Now, the last chapters of Ezekiel talk about uh, the building of a temple. And that section of Ezekiel seems to hold together 
really um, the revival, the potential revival of Israel uh, dry bones etc that's what could have happened when they came back from Babylon if they wanted to come back from Babylon most of them chose to stay there and didn't come back but they could have come back and could have become a mighty nation in the land they chose not to there could then have been that great invasion by Gog but it didn't happen because Amos prayed about it when he saw this vision and it didn't happen and that would mean that then the rest of it, the destruction of Gog in 39 and the establishment of the temple from 40 to 48 in Ezekiel, was also, let, let's say, what was potentially possible. But it didn't actually come about. And that answers a whole bunch of questions because, you know, Ezekiel 40 to 48 are pretty hard to really apply in a literal sense to the, to the kingdom age. Animal sacrifices mortal priests sweating told they mustn't marry divorced women so there's going to be divorce uh, if all that's going to happen literally um, in the the kingdom of God um, etc etc the whole thing seems to me to be a set of potential prophecies that could have come true but didn't and where that is I think inspiring for us where that is inspirational for us is that God is so sensitive to human behaviour. He has set up, let's say, billions of possibilities in human life. In your life, my life, life of the guy next to you. God has set up millions, billions of potential possibilities, day by day. And we fritter them away, or we can't be bothered, or we spend too, too much time chatting to someone on the phone about nothing, or mucking around on the computer, or just watching the telly, or whatever people waste their lives doing, when actually we could be getting on and doing what God has potentially set up for us. And it also cuts another way, in that God may set up something, and say, look, this is going to happen, but he is open to dialogue. Now, I'm not a Pentecostal, and I'm not a a fan at all of their claims of Mickey Mouse healing, etc. But I do know a brother uh, who was written off with cancer, and he engaged very seriously with God in dialogue, and said, I I don't want to go yet. Um, I I want to finish raising my kids, and I want to put, put my oar in raising my grandkids for you. And God hurt him oddly enough I only know that because this lovely brother said to God in that period of dialogue um, and if you heal me I'll uh, go over to Eastern Europe and help Duncan Easter and I only knew about this because um, the brother turned up he came over here and gave us a hand over, over here and he told me why he had come all the way from Australia to, um, to Eastern Europe to, to give us a hand in, in the work over here now God is open then, that was a pretty dramatic example, but God is open in maybe let's say less dramatic things I think. God may have a certain plan that starts to obviously come into effect in your life and you can reason with God about it. Not that you know better than God, but I think he works like that to impress upon us the crucial importance of life and living and that we have a say in our, our own destiny, that it is in our hands. So then, still in verse 1, let's leave that Septuagint reading on on one hand. 
Amos is an agricultural guy, he's a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Um, very humble occupation and um, nothing special. And a lot of uh, the images that God gives him are related to agriculture, which he could, uh, could relate to. And God, God's very gentle like that. And it says in verse 1, it's sticking with the Hebrew text here, um, or English uh, translation anyway, God formed these locusts. And notice incidentally that God formed every single locust. Man is not alone. If you feel alone, you feel God is far from you, you just look around you and feel the presence of God in the natural creation. He is alive and active. Every locust he forms. Anyway, he sees God forming these locusts in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Chapter 1, verse 1, Amos prophesies the time of Isaiah. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 10, Isaiah loved husbandry. I think that's a lovely little, um, you could say... Uh, undesigned coincidence, but of course there's no such thing as an undesigned coincidence when it comes to God, but that's a lovely little bit of corroboration, I think, between the records. Anyway, this judgment of the locusts, they come and they start uh, eating up all the grass, verse 2, it seems that even in God's judgment and in his anger, there's the hallmark of his grace all the way through. Because there were two harvests. There was a main harvest, and then there was this second uh, harvest. The king's mowings are like the first, uh, the first harvest, where they, I guess the king got, got the best of the crop. And then there was this second harvest that was not such a big one. And God could have sent the locusts in the vision to eat up the king's mowings, to eat up the, the first harvest, the important one that they all depended on. But God was so gracious. No, this was on the second one, um, which is not so crucial to their survival. And they'd eaten up uh, all the grass. They hadn't yet got to the crops. And then Amos intercedes. So God was very gentle. When you consider how he was provoked and is provoked, his gentleness shines through. And if we're scared stiff, as it were, of God's judgments for our sins, just... Not that it should justify anyone in sin, but God is very, very sensitive and very gracious. And then Amos jumps in, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise for he is small? The Lord repented for this. He doesn't say, Lord, don't do it. Don't, I know they've sinned, but please don't punish them that hard. He says, forgive their sin. And I think it's uh, intended that the Lord repented. They didn't repent. Israel didn't repent. God, uh, Amos says to God, please forgive them. Now this raises a fairly significant issue that I, I do not know the answer to in its ultimate term, that God is prepared to do a lot of things for individuals for the sake of third parties. For example, Mark 2 verse 5, when Jesus saw the faith of the friends, he said to the crippled man, uh, the, the sick man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, and he healed him. So that man was forgiven and healed because of the faith of his friends. And Israel at this time are forgiven because of the intercession of Amos, not because of their own repentance. And uh, 
it's odd how verse 3 the Lord repented you expect classically the people to repent and God to forgive but it's the other way around Amos says forgive them and God repented God changed his mind now that is just grace now this is not to say well it doesn't really matter then I better just make sure I got some, got some good friends who are going to pray to God for me and it's all going to be okay of course not and of course I, I do accept that salvation is a personal matter sin against God is a personal matter forgiveness, repentance etc. is all highly personal and we cannot I suppose ultimately save other people um, we can't be baptised for the dead or whatever as the Mormons do and yet we are faced with these words here in Amos whereby one man brings about the forgiveness of other people without their repentance and you can figure that they didn't really repent at this time because the rest of Amos goes on or God goes on to say how he's laid a plumb line to the wall and he is going to judge his people eventually they, and well, the rest of the prophecy goes on to make that clear all I can say is that there is an element to which God is prepared to forgive as he forgave the man who was sick of the palsy for the sake and the faith of his friends now, there's an element to which God is prepared to do things for other people including forgive, forgive them for the sake of our prayers and our intercession now seeing that to some degree which we cannot define but seeing that to some degree that is true well, you understand why in every letter of Paul's he's saying to his readers and friends I pray for you all the time really this signs us up to a life of prayer and intercession for other people before God it really does now the idea of a plague of locusts coming upon the land of Israel and a prophet praying and God ceasing and stopping the plague this is obviously alluding to the plague of locusts upon Egypt which was ended by Moses' mediation for Egypt just as Amos is now interceding for Israel in fact all through the book of Amos there are allusions to Israel as if they are Egypt um, here at chapter 4 verse 10 I have sent among you the pestilence the plague after the manner of Egypt yet you have not returned unto me time and again you, you get this I mean again in chapter 4 verse 7 he says I cause it to rain upon one city and cause it not to rain upon another city this idea of selective judgment upon a, a geographical area this is what happened in, in the land of Egypt that the Israelites didn't have some of the plagues whereas the Egyptians did plague of darkness for example the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived was okay but the plagues hit the other areas so all the way through and, and we go through every chapter and find some connection back to the judgments upon Egypt all the way through Israel are being presented as Egypt as the world and that's quite a theme in the Bible Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that those who are rejected at the day of judgment the believers who come to judgment day and are rejected shall be condemned with the world 
The apostate amongst God's people are treated as the world. That's why, come out from Babylon, lest you be consumed in her judgment. And so if in this world, in this life, we have preferred the things of the world, if for us, reading the Bible, going to the meeting, praying to God is all boring, and we just do it for whatever reason we do it, keep up appearances or whatever, but we actually prefer to sit with the guys in the bar, hang out with our friends, never talk about spiritual matters of God or Jesus or whatever, well, if that's the choice that we've made in this life, well, when the Lord comes, what will he, he do? You want to be with the world? Get back into the world. That's it. And, of course, in that moment, all those that have ever known anything about God and his Son will not want to be in the world. They will want to be in God's kingdom. But now is the time we make that decision, that crucial division between the believer and the world. But Israel wanted to be like the world, and so Amos, uh, his prophecy, talks about them all the time as, as if they're Egypt. That doesn't mean, of course, that Amos and God didn't, didn't love them. Um, he desperately wanted to see their salvation and their return to him. It's like in verse 4, in another figure, Israel are likened to the sea, and God's wrath comes down like the fire and starts to burn up the sea. It burns a part of it, and Amos intervenes. But the sea is typically used in the Bible as a symbol of the world, as the gen- of the Gentile world. But this is what is um, applied here to God's people, Israel. Amos perceived that, and he kind of got on board with the idea. And that's why he sees himself as Moses. He thinks, okay, so there was Egypt in God's eyes. Okay, well, Moses still interceded, didn't he? For Egypt, for Pharaoh, even. And so he does this for, for his people. <clears throat> Notice, uh, well, in verse 4, that it does eat up a part. The fire of God's judgment destroys part of the sea, part of God's people. This idea of part of God's people being burnt up by judgment is very common in Revelation, where a part of the earth or the land of Israel, as I interpret it, uh, is burnt up. And I personally have the view that the judgments that are to come upon the land or earth of Israel in Revelation, where different parts of it are burnt up, hit by plagues, etc., all that can be averted by prayer. That's why I understand the book of Revelation in a futurist sense. I, I understand it as talking about what is to come upon the earth in the last days. Uh, and why is it so difficult to interpret in the sense of saying this is going to happen and then that shall happen and then this will happen and then that will happen and etc. Why I don't even think it's possible to interpret it that way and let's face it for all the dogmatic allegations and claims no one has come up with a watertight interpretation of the book of Revelation at all not in my book anyway and it seems to me that it's not possible because the whole thing is so open-ended if there is repentance by Israel if this happens or that happens, then X, Y, Z shall not need to happen. 
And so this idea of different parts of the earth or land being burnt up, being judged, having plagues poured out upon them, is so similar to what you've got here in Amos. Very similar. That it seems to me that all that could likewise be conditional. And if there is strong enough intercession from you and me, if there is strong enough intercession from Israel, strong enough repentance, then it will not happen. It need not happen. Because that is the nature of prophecy, as I have said. There's a lot of Bible prophecy which is conditional. Although the conditions may not be explicitly stipulated at the time, there are these uh, conditions there, and God is willing to change. Because he doesn't like punishing people. He's not an angry God. He wants to save people. And God is love, in the final analysis. Okay, um, he makes this intercession. Oh Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. And he pleads the fact that Jacob is very small. And that word, Hebrew word translated small, it's the very same Hebrew word used about the historical Jacob being the younger son. Now, God delights to work through the weak, through the younger sons, the spiritually weak, the sinners, the left-handed judges. And he says, without that, how else shall Jacob arise? And again, I think that's a reference to the historical Jacob, because it's the same word as used, Genesis 31, 17, 35, verse 1, about when he meets with Esau, when really he should have been slain. He, Jacob, arises and goes forward and goes ahead he arises and does this and does that every time saved by God's grace from a just destruction for his sins and so I think Amos is saying God remember Jacob remember your whole theme your whole thing about working with the sinners with the weak ones with the small ones with the younger sons with the no good ones who in the very end, the very end, turn out your truest servants. So don't destroy your people as you're planning to. Just as Moses said, when God said, I, I'm through with Israel, I'll destroy them. He says, no, don't do that. Yeah, don't make of me a greater nation, but stick with them. Which again, in, indicates how God is open to dialogue. So... This is a comfort to any of us who feel that we, we've sinned to the point that we have gone too far, beyond the pale or when we're talking to people who maybe feel that I've gone too far I cannot get back with God it's all gone on for too long I've moved too far away I've rejected him to such extent that I, I can go back you know, it is exactly with small Jacob the younger son the weak one the one who does deserve to be destroyed but is not it is exactly with such a person that God works. And the myth that God works with the knights in shining armour, spiritually, those who appear to be so strong and so wonderful spiritually, that this is all a myth. There aren't such people. There's no knights in shining armour. There aren't at all. The army that will charge into God's kingdom will be the, you know, talk about the knight in rusty armour, if you ever read that book, uh, that's who they'll be. Really and truly. And that's us. That, that's you and me. Really and truly. So then, 
he says, forgive, I beseech you. And these two, same two Hebrew words are only found elsewhere on the lips of Moses. And in fact, they're found on the lips of Moses twice. Exodus 34 verse 9, Exodus 34 9, Numbers 14 19, Numbers 14 19. Moses was the only other person to say that. Forgive, I beseech you. And he says it twice. So there's, Moses, uh, there's Amos, this uh, sycamore fruit gatherer, gathering pretty well uh, pig food, uh, as I uh, understand it. Really the lowest of the low, a herdman. And he'd spend his life, it seems to me, thinking about Bible history and the way God had worked in the past and the greatness of Moses. And so Moses sort of spiritual ambition when God said, I'll destroy this people and, God, and Moses says, forgive them, I beseech you. This rubbed off on Amos and he prays in the very words of Moses. And so many times when you look at the prayers that are recorded in the Bible, they are actually quoting from or alluding to previous prayers that are recorded in Scripture. Now, Amos really got into the spirit of Moses when he says in chapter 7, verse 5, O Lord God, cease. Because that's the same word used to describe how when Moses prayed to God, the plagues ceased. Exodus 9, 29, 9, 33, 9, 34. It sounds like bingo, doesn't it? Um, I'll say it again if you're making notes. Exodus 9:29, 33, 34. So Moses uses those same words to, to reason with God, to, to plead with God uh, uh, with, for Israel, and he also prays to God about the plagues ceasing upon Egypt. And really, Amos is right into Moses. He understood that Moses had the spiritual ambition to say to God, ah, no, don't do that. Although you've said you, you're going to do that, please don't. And Amos says the same. And so one way that we can grow spiritually is to allow the Bible characters, which we have there in the scriptures, to come alive to us, to play what Harry Whitaker used to call Bible television, to, to see in these characters uh, some live person and they should speak to us we are surrounded Hebrews 12 says by so great a, a cloud of uh, witnesses that they are as it were cheering us on as we run with patience the race that is set before us in, in our generation and so these figures Amos, Moses, whoever should be living inspiration to us as Moses clearly was to this lonely man Amos, this herdman and fruit gatherer as he wandered around Moses inspired him and then when probably unexpectedly it came to him to be a prophet for God and then God says, shows him how he's going to destroy Israel he's right there with Moses he thinks, wow, this is, this is just like it was in the time of Moses Locusts destroying the, the land, going to destroy Israel. No, 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 no. Forgive, I beseech you. He has the, the motivation to, to rise up and to change God's stated purpose. And two wonderful little words in verse 3 The Lord repented for this. For this. Now, of course, his prayer might have been a lot longer, but maybe it wasn't. 
Maybe all it was was what he says in verse 2. Then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. What's that? In the Hebrew text, I don't know, 10 words? 15 words? You could say that in, what, 10 seconds, 20 seconds? And for this, for let's say 20 seconds, of words from a man here on earth, God changed his mind. For this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. Okay, I won't do it. This is how sensitive God is. A guy standing at a tram stop. And he prays to God. A fellow sitting on a tram, a fellow driving his car. And he prays to God at the traffic lights, or maybe driving along. Uh, from the heart, for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, we tiny little things here on this planet can change the, the mind of God Almighty in heaven itself. It's almost unbelievable. But this is the sensitivity, the colossal sensitivity of God to us. This is the endless inspiration in, in human prayer. Now, whilst we are there um, in, in verse 4, sorry, verse 5, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small, uh, and it's the same, of course, in verse 2. I would like to draw your attention to the fact that that, that, that can also be uh, retranslated. Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, who shall stand for Jacob? It could be an allusion to the court of heaven, where Israel has an angel that stands for them, and you, you get that for sure in Daniel 12, uh, verse 1, where we're specifically told who that angel is. Michael is the great prince who stands for the children of Daniel's people. He stands for them. And now Amos is saying, if you destroy Israel, who shall stand for Jacob? Like, are you saying that Michael can do this? And I explained in, in great boring detail in uh, my book about angels that <clears throat> I, I have a hunch that whenever you uh, read about God changing his mind, it's in the context of angels. There's angels around somewhere or other. And I also suggested there that if you look at the phrase the God of Jacob, that usually that phrase appears to refer to an angel rather than God himself in person. Now if that is the case, that may help some people to come to terms with this idea of God appearing to change his mind. God's saying one thing here and then the Lord repents. In what sense does Yahweh repent of what he said he's going to do? You could argue, well, it's not God himself, but he's delegated a lot to the angels, and they change. Angels can change, but God can't. Um, that, that, that's one way of trying to deal with this whole thing about God changing his mind. I personally, I used to run with that, but I, more recently I, I, I don't. But I mention it in case it's uh, helpful or stimulating to you. But um, I, I really think that the simple answer is that God's love is so strong that his passion for us is so strong that he changes. 
I mean, we read there, chapter 6, verse 8, The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob, I hate his palaces, therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And if there remain ten men in one house, they shall die. Chapter 4, 11 and 12. I have overthrown some of you, yet you didn't return unto me. Verse 12. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. This is going to happen. And yet there, we just read in chapter 7, this shall not be. This is the extraordinary sensitivity of God. And that's what I think it it is. I I don't get by the angel interpretation anymore. I just think that God loves us so much that he can say things in the fire of his anger, and his anger and wrath are a function of the extent of his passionate love for us. And yet he can then change his mind. He's allowed to do that. Um because of the the depth of his passion for us and if we doubt as we do at times whether in the end we shall be saved whether in the end the love of God is stronger and greater than our lack of faith than our sinfulness well I think in these kind of reflections and these realities as I see them we, we have every encouragement that his love is stronger now he says in chapter 7 verse 8 <clears throat> rather unclear in translation at the end I will not again pass by them anymore Good News Bible says I will not change my mind again about punishing them Now God is aware that he has changed his mind In Ezekiel 7 verse 7 he says look I'm going to punish you this time and my threatened punishment will not be like another echo in the mountains. And yet having said that he still doesn't punish them as he threatens. Again in Hosea 11 verse 8 my heart is turned within me my repentings are kindled together. This is the extent to which God is, is, is so passionate for his people that he cannot give them up he really can't and yet this is all triggered by Amos saying O Lord God forgive I beseech you and God saying okay Amos for this I repent it shall not be so then just in conclusion Amos has this wonderful relationship with God and he saves Israel from destruction and what's Israel's response verse 10 Amaziah the priest of battle sent to Jeroboam king of Israel saying Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel he's telling a lie he slanders Amos Amos has said this that and the other and Amaziah says to Amos, O oh, you prophet, go flee your way into the land of Judah and prophesy there, but don't prophesy any more at battle. Now, Amos didn't actually answer that serious false allegation against him personally, but he gets on with speaking forth God's word. And uh, I guess a number of us have had to go through that, uh, that same thing. But my, my point is what he says in verse 14. I was no prophet 
neither was I a prophet's son he's saying look I wasn't groomed for the office I was not as the British would say to the manner born I was not a prophet's son my dad wasn't a prophet I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit and the Lord took me as I followed the flock and the Lord said unto me go prophesy unto my people Israel so he's saying that look this is not my natural inclination to teach you or to do this for you but I was made to do it and the fact that I was not groomed for it I'm not cut out for it is actually a proof that is actually a proof that I really am sent from God and Paul says something very similar he may have even had his mind on Amos when he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.17 where he says that the fact that preaching the gospel was against his will was therefore a sign to him that what he calls a dispensation of the gospel had been given to him so if we feel that we are not cut out we're not really cut out for the job of whatever we ask to do for God actually that's how he works that's how he likes to do things he actually likes to use people who are not cut out for the job that's what he rejoices in doing it's why when God was going to destroy Israel at this time Amos says no don't do that Jacob is small he's the younger brother same word how shall he arise how shall he go forward like the historical Jacob did forgiven by grace when he was uh, a, a very wayward man who despised God's grace etc but in the end Jacob got there so Amos is saying look, that's how you work how you rejoice to work and this is yeah, all the way through this is how God works it's how as I say God worked with Paul Paul was sent to the Gentiles not to the Jews although he clearly would have preferred to be sent to the Jews I mean he was a rabbi you could just imagine him going to preach to the Jewish kind of intellectuals but instead the disciples who were unlearned and ignorant men were sent to preach to those guys so all the time God uses people who are not cut out for the job in the first century women were not accepted as legal witnesses and yet the Lord rises from the dead and the first people he tells to go and be witnesses of his resurrection were women people who were not humanly qualified to do so and it was the same with Amos he says look you, you're questioning whether I'm a genuine bona fide prophet I tell you I'm a prophet because I'm not a prophet's son I was a guy going someplace else but God stopped me in my tracks and told me to go and preach the gospel and in fact he, I think he's alluding to himself in chapter 3 um, <clears throat> verse uh, 8 the lion has roared who will not fear you know he says shall a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's not been a trap set for him um, shall there be a trumpet blown in the city and the people will not be afraid he says there's, if A happens then B is the natural result that's what he's saying the Lord God hath spoken who can but prophesy 3 verse 8 I think that's what he's, he's alluding to himself God has spoken I, although I'm not cut out for it I cannot but speak it out that's just has to be it's as normal and a natural corollary as uh, a lion must roar in the forest when he's taken his prey verse 4 
a bird uh, falls uh, upon the earth in a snare when a snare has been set. If A happens, then B must happen. And if B's happened, then therefore A must have happened before it. So he says, God has spoken. I cannot but prophesy. And I think that is definitely picked up in the New Testament. When when they arrest uh, Peter and them and say, why are you preaching? Don't you know that you're not supposed to be preaching? And they say, we cannot but. We cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Just as Amos 3 verse 8, God has spoken, who can but who can but prophesy or speak this forth? It doesn't just mean to predict the future uh, prophesy, it means to, to speak forth God's word, speak it out. And so, you and I, thinking of this whole message of Amos 7, reflecting on it, the idea of open-ended purpose of God, reflecting upon our place in his purpose, our role as intercessors for others, our possibilities, the potentials that God has set up by the million I think, in our lives and we're wondering about all that time and again we think, but it's not for me uh, no, I can't I, I cannot it is not, N-O-T it is not a case of can't do it, was made to do it God does not make you and I do anything not at all. But I just hope that you'll pick up the general impression and feel and spirit that I take from this Amos 7. That God is there so eager, so thirsting for dialogue with his people, for fellowship with men and women, that he is open to our involvement, eager for our involvement. We can rise up into the spirit of Amos, and if Amos is this guy wandering around looking after the animals and collecting sycamore fruit, if he could do this, if he could rise up to the spirit of Moses and say, forgive, I beseech you, O God. If he could reason with God and dialogue with God and change God's stated purpose, then so can you and I. If we feel that we're not cut out and all these alarm bells go off in our minds but I'm not good at that, someone else will be better at that that's not for me, I can't, I can't no, sure you can't and sure, you're not going to be the slick presentation but God doesn't work through slick presentations he really does not certainly in the matter of preaching his word he does not work through slick presentations like it or not, but he doesn't uh, but that is a, a fact that is not, not disputable. He works through raw flesh, through raw men and women, in all their weakness, going out and telling the bloke next to them about the possibilities that are there for that guy as there are for me. And God is there almost, the impression I take from all this, God is sitting on the edge of his seat, willing us forward, because he is with us as he was with Amos. Thank you.